Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to answer questions that you may have about your meditation practice or your application of mindfulness in your life. Happy New Year. This is the first meeting of the new year. We're going to be it's going to be the last meeting for a while. I'm going away next week. I'm not sure when I'll be back. So if you have any questions, let's start the new year off right. As usual, we'll spend the first fifteen minutes in silent meditation. So it's an opportunity to clear your mind, create clarity and presence of mind to prepare yourself. If you're new, it's an opportunity for you to go to our website and figure out what we're all about. You can start to read the booklet, our booklet on how to meditate. If you have questions, this is the time to start posting them. We'll spend the first 15 minutes collecting the questions and organizing them. And at 15 minutes after the hour, I will be back to begin answering the questions.
So again, you can continue posting questions in the chat. From here on, anything that's not a question will just be removed. If you don't have questions, or once you've asked your question, stay mindful. Close your eyes. Close your Facebook and other tabs. Put your phone down. Just stay present. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. When walking meditation becomes too mechanical, preceding each noting step with this is, this is lifting, etc., seems to help with staying present with each sequence as it reminds one of the movement and also creates space between each noting object, beginning and ending. Buddha said, when walking, know that you are walking, or this is walking. Any thoughts on this? So this is an example of trying to fix things, trying to make things better, easier, and more productive and it's it's a problematic uh, approach because it um, encourages a sense of control and a sense of partiality uh, a sense of greed desire for things to be better aversion to the way things are so because you've started off but you've you've given yourself away by calling it too mechanical. What does that even mean, too mechanical? Sounds like you're saying um, it, it's, it, it uh, allows the mind to wander. And okay, that's, that's not actually the problem that you think it is. When the mind wanders, you should stop walking and note the wandering, say distracted, distracted. You shouldn't be trying to make it perfect, make it so that your mind doesn't do what it's going to do. The whole point is to see what your mind's going to do, and if you're spending all your time trying to stop that, it, you're you're defeating the process. So um, it's meant to be mechanical. I mean, walking. One big thing that people fail to appreciate about walking is that it's not really about the walking; it's about the movements. Each movement, each individual movement, uh, is to be observed. And so you have to get out of the out of the mind state of I'm walking somewhere and into the mind state of this is the foot lifting and moving and so on. So uh, it sounds like you're overthinking it and trying to make it better. As for your um, argument at the end or the premise that the, what the Buddha said, the Buddha didn't speak English, and that's important because these translations are not very accurate. Uh, the Buddha spoke something like Pali, and in Pali he just says gachami. One word, it means means basically I am walking, but it's all one word. So you can just say walking, walking. But when we do walking meditation, we do try to break it down. We say, in Thai they say something like right goes thus, left goes thus. I didn't translate it that way because... Um, it's just a weird way to say it in English, especially for people who aren't native English speakers. Nobody says right goes thus, so I changed it to stepping right. You can do either way, though. Right goes thus, or stepping right. And, and right, but then you're talking about the more detailed aspects, and yeah, then that goes out the window, and it's very simple. Lifting, moving, placing, that sort of thing. But yeah, um, your attempts to try to make it better somehow are... are not not proper. You shouldn't be trying to uh, adapt the practice in any way. You should be trying to pay attention to your mind uh, as it reacts to the practice. When I am noting rising and falling, my attention would be on the sensations of my abdomen, while at the same time I am aware of sounds or thoughts. Is there a difference between attention and awareness? It's not possible to be aware of two things at once. If you think about it logically, it doesn't even make any sense. Um, but uh, but it, it makes sense to someone who has a sense of self. So you have this idea of you 
who somehow could be aware of many things all at once, but in terms of reality, there's no that's not how it actually works. You're only aware of one thing at a time. It's just really quick and kind of fuzzy. And the fuzziness, the lack of clarity makes it seem like everything's happening. Well, it, it leads you to assume or or speculate that things are happening all at once when you, if you actually gain the clarity and a sort of a sharpness of awareness, you can see that, you know, actually things do happen one after another. They can happen very quickly, of course, but you can only be aware of one thing at a time. So, uh, yeah, I don't, this question doesn't really have any... Um, I mean, you're you're just you're just asking curiosity question basically, but but it's important to understand that um, you can't be aware of two things at once because you have to understand that you have to note wherever your mind goes. So if you're aware of sounds, you should note hearing. If you're aware of thoughts, you should note thinking. When you realize them, that's all. When talking, what do you note? Talking or hearing? And do you note at the same time while talking? So the thing about talking is that by the time you're actually speaking the words, you've already the the mind has already done its thing. So yes, you can be aware of talking. I would rather note something like feeling if you're feeling your lips moving, or hearing hearing the sound of your own voice. It's certainly possible. It's not something you should worry too much about, especially in the beginning. So yeah, I mean, talking is a good sort of, let's say, beginner note. You just note talking. You can note it as you're saying it. You don't have to. I mean, the the thing about talking is it does involve mental activity, and so it can be, in the beginning at least, quite difficult to actually note. But it's a good exercise, really, certainly. Like, as I'm talking now, I can also be noting the feeling of the lips moving and so on. Certainly doable. I had one meditator laugh at me and like like just scoff at the possibility and it kind of shocked me. I was like we it's it's not that hard. It's not as easy as some sorts of noting, but it's not impossible. Harder, I guess, when you're with someone else because you're kind of there's emotions involved often, but uh, it's certainly doable. Does it matter how long one waits after they eat to meditate? No, uh, walking meditation is very good right after you eat. I had someone, one teacher I had, um, my first teacher, uh, he claimed that you shouldn't meditate right after eating because the mindful prostration, he's joking a little bit, but he said something like, um, you might throw up if you try to do mindful prostration, but I mean, no, you won't. You just don't don't eat until you're going to throw up. I mean, it's not. I don't really agree with that. Um, so yeah, you can do the mindful prostration. That's there's no problem there. Just you know, be mindful and don't overeat to the point that you're going to puke. Um, and after mindful, the walking meditation will be very good right after. Ajahn Tong would always do walking right after he ate. Not always, but I, I've seen him do it, and and he certainly that's what he said, you know. Right after you eat, walking meditation is great, and he lived that. He did it himself, so you have him as an example. When we practice lifting, moving, etc., does intention come before action, and action before noting, even though they appear simultaneous? What is the point of these questions? You don't need to you don't need to ask these questions. You just have to pay attention, and it doesn't really matter which comes first. If you notice intention and it notice it comes before the action, then you note that. The thing, what's important here is to understand. I mean, it's kind of good that you're grasp grappling with these questions, but I wouldn't ask these questions. It would just, you know, I'm trying to try to note thinking or something and just be mindful of as it happens. But uh, you may be gr- trying to figure this out, and you don't need to figure it out. You just have to observe it. Sometimes the mind is first, sometimes the mind is second. So, for example, sometimes the mind is waiting and appears to be causing the, phys- the, the, the physical response. It doesn't really, but it, it conditions it, certainly. Sometimes the physical happens and then the mind is aware of it. It means you realize that something has happened and you notice that you're late 
or something like that, or you're noticing it after it happens or as it's happening already, that sort of thing. All that's important is you see the body, see the mind, see how they work together, and see the problems that you cause by clinging to them, clinging to the body, even clinging to the mind. I feel like oftentimes I do noting without really being mindful of whatever has arisen. Like I say, pain, pain, but I'm just saying it. Any advice on this? Yeah, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, there's a lot of things that can happen there, like it's already disappeared and you continue to note, well, then you realize it's disappeared, and that's what the important thing is. That's the important thing, is that you notice that it disappeared. That's fine. Once you notice it that it disappeared, just stop saying it. But if you notice that the pain's there, just say pain. All you're doing is like reassuring yourself. Nothing is supposed to happen. In fact, the point is that nothing happens. The point is that your mind stays pure, that you don't react to it. When there's pain and you say pain, pain, well, nothing happened. That's the point, because if you didn't say it, you were going to get upset about it or con confused about it or, or caught up in it, you know. Lots of things come as a result. Instead, we want our mind to be clear and pure. That's what the noting is for. It's just saying, hey, that's all it was. It's nothing special. And then you're like, nothing special happened. Yeah, that's the point. It's nothing special. It's just pain. How does one stay consistent in daily meditation and daily mindfulness? Well, be enlightened. Consistency is a sign of, uh, of, of well, it's a sign of um, proficiency, right? That's a good, good catchphrase. Consistency is a sign of proficiency. I'm sure someone's already said something like that, but it is a catchy phrase. Get good, be good at it. Can you please give advice on how to sit cross-legged longer? I can barely sit for five minutes before I get leg and back pain. Same sort of answer. You know, it just takes time. Sit on a chair sometimes. You have to, um, you have to be clever. It's called kusalu uh, upaya. Means you need sort of a, a clever, clever artifices. So you can prop your legs up a little bit. You can sit on a chair sometimes. We had one meditator who tried to do the course here, and he almost went to the hospital because he he, he pushed himself so hard. And I said, well, you know, just sit in a chair sometimes. And he wasn't going to do it. He said, no, I was just going to force myself. Well, yeah, that's the problem. And, and when he stopped forcing himself, he was able to finish the course. So if you push yourself, you're, you're not doing yourself any favors like that. So if you can barely sit for five minutes before you get... Here's the thing. It's okay to get leg and back pain. That's expected, especially for someone like you, someone someone who hasn't isn't able to sit like that. that. That's expected. Don't worry about it. Pain isn't a real problem. Just sit with it until you can't bear it, and then try sitting in a chair sometimes or sit against the wall. Or... But but the important point there that I meant to say is that um, it's important that you do sit with the pain as, as long as you can. It's important you understand that it's, it's, it's not supposed to be painless. It's not supposed to be painful either. But if it is painful, that's not a reason to quit. Uh, that's a reason to be mindful of pain. Because as you can see, pain is something that causes very strong reactions in the mind and that's very important to understand to become familiar with and to overcome so that in the future when you experience pain you no longer react to it you see that the reaction that's causing you suffering not the pain but you don't want to push too hard because again you'll go to the hospital you'll end up injuring yourself and yeah, sort of thing. I mean, not really with, with ordinary back and leg pain you, you probably won't go to the hospital but it can be sort of debilitating, at least in the short term. So you want to be, it's not going to help you if you pull something or I don't know what would happen. I don't think you'd pull something, but it, it can be a pain that lasts for a while. And, and I suppose if you really pushed it, you could probably pull something. I don't know. Usually it's just a stretching pain that just takes patience. 
Oftentimes it has to do with bad karma, if you have immediate back pain and a strong reaction to it. They say it's because in past lives you probably hurt other people, probably tortured other beings, that sort of thing. And it's not something to be concerned with, just be patient with it. Some people don't know that some people don't experience it, so you can say, okay, well, this is just my lot in life, and it does get better, especially if you're, you know, it gets better if you're very mindful of it. Does listing fake experience in a job application break the precept against false speech? Oh, yes. Yes, indeed it does. I mean, you might argue that it doesn't because, A, you didn't talk to anyone. You didn't talk to anyone. And, B, you're... Uh, you're, you're not, well, I mean, I guess it, it, it relates to not talking, but you're not actually affirming that that's the truth. Why I say that is because there is a quote of the Buddha where he says, you know, you really clearly break the precept when you're under oath and you affirm something to be false that is true or something true that is false, and you're just categorical about it. Other times you can make off-the-cuff statements. Like, for example, suppose you off-the-cuff said something and then you realize that it was not true. You could say that I didn't really lie, because once I realized that it was true, I, I made sure not to reaffirm it. Uh, you know, sometimes you just say things too quickly. That can happen. So you could argue, I mean, I wouldn't. I would say that this is pretty clearly crossing the line. There's no question, A, you have intent to, to, um, to, mis, to mis, mislead someone. Um, B, you, you make action to mislead them. C, they are misled. And, uh, and that's about it, really, right? Doesn't get much more cut and dried. Nothing exists except experiences caused by karma. Experiences continue on over moments slash lifetimes when liking slash disliking continue. This creates the illusion of an individual ego slash self moment by moment. Is this correct? I think the Buddha specifically said that it's not true to say that um, nothing exists except experience caused by karma. I mean, it's complicated, but pretty clear that the Buddha didn't really endorse this kind of uh, idea, this sort of deterministic, everything is karma kind of attitude. Experiences continue on over moments, when liking, disliking, it's not about liking and disliking, it's about delusion or ignorance. As long as there's ignorance, you can read about Paticca Samupada, Avidya Pachaya Sankhara. So it only continues because of the ethically charged states. It doesn't mean that everything is ethically charged, right? Creates the illusion of an individual. Um, so it does, yeah, and again, I mean, you're, you're just saying things, but it's not really, none of it's really true. None of what you've said creates the illusion of an individual ego self. D delusion, ignorance creates the individual of ego self. Ego self. Uh, or so I get. I kind of get what you're saying, but no, it doesn't in and of itself create the illusion. It's the the um, it's delusion which does that, or it's ignorance. I see, because some people have stronger illusions of individual ego self. Some some people have a very strong sense of ego. Some people have weak sense of ego, or maybe even I don't know about none at all. Probably not. I mean, of course, enlightened people don't. So yeah, some people have no illusion of individual self-ego. So the experiences themselves, when I'm saying don't create that, it's something else. It's delusion, let's say. It has to be delusion. When we die, should we go to the light, or should we just note peace? Well, that's an interesting. I mean, you don't give me much choice there, but the answer is neither. Uh, I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to be mindful, how to meditate, but you should uh, you should really just be mindful. 
because you're using the word just note, so it sounds like you've got some idea of what we do, but we've never note peace. See, that that ad activity would be a craving for something, or maybe not craving, but a, yeah, there's craving involved for sure. It's hard to say that that wouldn't be some kind of craving and partiality, wishing, hoping, trying to manifest something. And go to the light, similar really, usually brought on by desire, can be because of fear as well, aversion, delusion. But no, none of that is what you should do when you die. You should practice mindfulness as according to the four foundations, as is outlined in our booklet. So read the booklet, and if you get good at that before you die, You'll already have all, everything you need to do to die mindfully and with a clear mind. Sometimes my mind feels like it freezes, and I have no thought and am unable to note in that moment, except only that I'm awake. What is happening at that moment? What should I note after this experience? Well, note that you're awake. Just say awake or aware or something like that. Knowing is something we often use, just knowing, knowing. I'm not sure that knowing is the best, but it's what we always say. It's fine. Aware might be just as good, might be even better, because knowing is just kind of weird. It's just a weird English um, word. But in Thai, they say the same thing, runa, runa. You can just say knowing or aware. Either one is fine. Knowing is good, though, I guess, because... Aware is kind of, mm, aware is a bit, knowing is, is kind of because it describes it as, a, as an experience. Either one is fine. Uh, but you can also note things like feeling, like you feel calm or quiet. You can note quiet if there's nothing. You can also note f feeling, like if you feel, you say your mind feels like it freezes. Well, the giveaway there is feels. It feels like something, so just note feeling, feeling. Or frozen, even, it's fine. Those are all fine. As for what is happening in that moment, doesn't really matter. What is happening is what is happening, and that might sound like a brush-off, but, um, you know, this, this terribly cliché saying that you hear, it is what it is, is, it's unfortunate how lazy people use it, but um, it is really an important saying. It just happens to be that if you really did take things as they were, that would be enlightenment, you know. If you just saw it, it is what it is, right? That's the whole point of saying seeing. You say, let's let what is seen just be what is seen. So it is what it is, uh, no matter how overused that phrase is. Uh, it's actually a good one. If a person has brain damage from a car accident, they may lose the ability to hear if the hearing center in the brain is impaired. Doesn't this show that the mind is dependent on the brain? For stimuli, yes. I mean, you can't, you can't hear things without the ear. But, that being said, you can hear things um, without the ear. If I, I don't know, if there's a certain part of the brain that doesn't even allow that, I'm not sure. I don't know how that works, but like, you know how when a song is in your head or something someone said to you is in your head or a sound of some sort, you know, you can give rise to sounds without your ears, without a connection to the ears. So I don't know if you mean that part of the brain, but, you know, the brain is still triggering those things. So yeah, the the mind is not dependent on the brain. Experiences... Um, physical experiences are dependent on the physical, right, and our connection with that. That being said, again, there's um, the mind is perfectly capable of acting on its own without uh, the, the involvement of the brain, to some extent. Again, the brain makes a very strong filter. It's more like a prison, or like, like Plato said, like a cave, and you're just seeing... Um, images on the on the cave wall you know, if you ever look you can look up plato in the cave i mean it's not that important to look it up but the same sort of idea philosophers have thought about this sort of thing the body is a like a prison 
or a cave that keeps us from th- seeing things clearly. If you hear about people who have out-of-body experiences and they say, suddenly everything was super hyper clear beyond anything I've ever experienced in my life. It was just magical or spiritual. It's not really. It's just that you're no longer in prison. The body is a prison, and if part of it breaks down, it's like closing a window or part of the prison collapsing on you, that sort of thing. How can one get consistent with the Buddhist practice, like the Dhamma, courses, and meditation? I made a commitment to do so this year, but unfortunately I lost track of it, and now I'm all lost in life. So this is another, I don't know if this is the same person, but it's very similar to the last question about consistency, and the answer is the same. I mean, it just takes practice. You can't... um, make a determination and then magically expect yourself to be able to fulfill it. So maybe uh, you've gained some wisdom and humility, realizing that you're not as all-powerful as you thought you were. I'm sort of teasing. I don't mean to be so... so, so uh, um, kind of like... not. So, it doesn't sound so nice when I say that, so I don't mean it in a not-nice way. I'm just kind of teasing, but... Um, but we do, we think we are powerful and we don't realize how powerless we are and how at the whim of this uh, chaotic and manipulative and uh, unwieldy un, uh, mind that we think is ours, you know. We think we can control it. I'll just do this, I'll just make this determination, right? I'll make this commitment why didn't it work? That's humility. You're, you're becoming humbled. And part of, part of that is not just humility, it's flexibility. Learning that you can't bend things to your will. You have to learn to bend to the will of, of your mind, to the reality of it. And you can become free, but that means discarding everything, including your own mind, including any attachment to your own self. You need to you need to change your perspective and stop trying to find something you can cling to, something you can rely upon. The only thing you can rely upon is the unreliability, and that again sounds kind of trite to say, but it really is the way. You know, you have to change from again, as just to repeat, you have to change your attitude from trying to find something to cling to, to living a life of independence of not clinging. I've said this before. This is very integral to central and core to Buddhist practice. Are the pull-outs during the second day of determination meditation the fruition? Yes. We don't call them pull-outs, that's a strange translation. I'm not sure where you're getting that from, but uh, uh, I think you're trying to remember what I said, the way I would have told you or someone, unless you're like Thai and you're trying to translate from Thai, I don't know. When noting, does each sensation arise one at a time, but our attention is too slow, so it looks like sensations arise simultaneously? It doesn't even look like that. You just have this idea because of this sense of self that uh, you know makes you infer that they're happening, or or you know, kind of get the idea that it's you uh, experiencing all these things one at a time. That's only your own inter. It's like an interpretation, and it's just due to lack of clarity. That's all. They they don't look like that. I mean, I guess you could say it's like seeing something far away. Like, you know those paintings that are made of um, of of points? I don't know what's it called, point? Something like point. There's a, there's a word for it, but there's this very famous art form, pointism or something. No, there's a better word for it. But they just make dots. But if you look at it from far away, it looks like a picture. But if you go up close, you see, oh, actually, it's just dots. Pointillism or something like that. Pontillism? I don't know. 
pointillism, yeah. Kind of like that, but um, yeah, kind of. What should I do when meditating and sexual thoughts arise? Do they appear because we somehow take pleasure in them but are not aware of it? Or is it connected with masturbating in the past? Hmm. Well, let's only address the first... I mean, I'll talk about it, but the, the important thing here is the first part. Uh, what you should do is pretty simple. I mean, this isn't anything special. It's kind of special because of how hard it is to deal with. I mean, these are the real, deeply-seated aspects of what it means to be human, right? The desire for food, the desire for sex, um, the desire to what breathe, I don't know, water, what else? There's not much else. The desire to live, um, you know, to not die if you're being, if you're facing death. These very core aspects um, that lead us to be reborn. Why we're born as a human being has a lot to do with sexuality. So you can't be too hard on yourself about these things. Sex, sexuality is integral in, in humanity. And uh, it's, it's not going to lead you to hell just because you have sexual thoughts. Unless they get very, it's only when they get like very, very intense and you're consumed by them, then it can have consequences. But you know, don't be too worried about that. I mean, don't take your, take it too hard. But it is concerning. It is important, right? Because this can affect your life. It's what leads to so much horror in the world. Like if you read or hear about stories of people who have been sexually assaulted people who are sexually harassed constantly. You know, it's just a, this is a thing that people go through. I read a story and I was thinking, if I, have, if I still had a blog, if I still had a web blog, I would post this on my web blog or a link to it. It's not Buddhist, but it's a story of a, a woman whose friend was so beautiful. And uh, she said, um, what did she, she said she was, she was, um, so jealous of her friend but then she noticed something that her friend never went out her friend never went into society and had no friends and she thought why was why is that and as she i mean it was someone sorry it wasn't a friend it was someone she met and was a roommate with and as she got to know her better and and spent time with her and went out with her and even you know she realized her life was just horrific and it would spawn this whole conversation about how uh, how how it can be just horrific, and and so how this relates is how um, sexuality is a cause for so much suffering. Because and it's not because it's not what I didn't get. Well, like the conversation seemed to be about how tragic it is to be beautiful, and it's not actually. It's missing the point, really. It's tragic how horrible people are about their sexuality. How horrible, mostly men, I would say, are in regards to sexuality in terms of uh, objectifying women and, and men um, and uh, turning everything into uh, sexuality and it just, just causing suffering for others and, and completely overlooking the pain and suffering of others you know how you can be so horrific not not talking even about sexual assault but just sexual harassment objectification that sort of thing just um just horrific if you if you actually pay attention to what sexuality does in the world it just and how it uh, torments people children who are who are abused and that sort of thing so it's uh, an important thing, to important topic. And and so I'm, I'm not suggesting that the person asking this could be in any way. I'm, an assume, I'm assuming they're a good person. They wouldn't be here otherwise. But um, it's a beast, right? If you get caught up in sexuality, even a good person, you suddenly lose all sense of morals, sense of... of not, not just morals, it's not even... It's more subtle than that. Any sense of your own happiness your own peace of mind, and just throw it out the window, and you'll do anything. You'll hurt yourself so badly just to get what you want. You, you go, it's like going crazy. It's like you turn into a beast, an animal, 
and you hurt yourself. Like take someone who has been scorned, right? Who can't get the object of their, their affection. They will kill themselves over it. They will cut themselves over it. They will torture themselves over it. So it's a big deal. Sexuality, food is another one. I could go on about how, you know, the problems with food, right? All of the sicknesses, but I think sexuality even involves a much deeper, of course, I mean, without question, a much deeper sort of sickness that leads people to hurt not only themselves, but deeply, deeply hurt others and kill. You know? Sensuality, the Buddha said, it's because of sensuality that we we go to war, the Buddha said. It's very, uh, very wise. Not just for that, but the, of course he was wise, but a testament to his wisdom, how, how sharp and direct and on point he was about things like sensu well, sensuality in general. So that doesn't answer any of your question, but that just says how, how important it is. And it's not to, so not to trivialize it and to appreciate how challenging and problematic it is. But um, don't be discouraged by that. You have to just appreciate how deeply ingrained it is, how long it might take for you to overcome it, and gain a healthy relationship, a healthy respect for the power it has. Uh, don't, don't try and trivialize it and say, it's okay, I can control it, or I'm going to beat it, or I'm going to overcome it. You're not. You're going to be whipped by it. You're going to be beaten into submission by it until you become humble and come out, crawl away beaten and, and uh, defeated. Because it's when you're defeated that you learn to let go. You learn to stop trying to control, stop trying to fix, and just trying to understand. Watch. And when you watch, you'll learn. When you learn, well, you'll see. When you see, you'll see there's nothing really special about it. You'll change your perspective on it. You'll see this is a monster, and it's not bringing me any happiness or peace or freedom from suffering. It's really quite meaningless. But that takes such depth. I mean, if you really want to know what you should do is you should take time out of your life, take a vacation and go and really deal with it. Spend some time facing it. I mean, spend the time, some time facing yourself in general through a mindfulness practice. Um, so the rest of it, do they appear because we somehow take... I mean, they appear because of delusion, the belief that they're somehow stable, satisfying, and controllable. It's certainly connected with bad with past habits and uh, past activities, so absolutely that's the case. I have started thinking that since I and most other people are defiled, it is safest to stick to oneself and engage as little as possible with others. Is this a good mindset? I think it's a pretty good mindset. I mean, you have to, you're walking a fine line there because the problem with this is that it's not the answer. The answer is mindfulness, of course. You should rather think of this as the natural outcome or what do you say, byproduct of being mindful is that you stick to yourself and engage as little as possible. No, it goes more than that. And in order to protect yourself, like a young sapling trying to grow into a tall tree you have to you have to guard yourself you know you have to put up these um when you when you plant a sapling you have to put up these sticks and wires to keep the sapling upright and protect it from wind and hail and that sort of thing um so yeah there's a protection aspect there but you can't see that as the solution and if you do you're going to be sorely disappointed and you're going to end up being frustrated and uh, you'll, you'll get caught up in ideas of trying to control. So the fine line is, is between making right, making good choices to stick to yourself and trying to control your situation, trying to avoid and um, you know remove things from your life. You shouldn't really be trying to remove per se. You just make good choices, keep yourself protected, but um, 
appreciate that ultimately you have to face whatever comes your way in the end. So the only way it, it works to, to run away is as a temporary stopgap measure. The way it works in the long term is, again, you just make those choices and it's sort of a byproduct of mindfulness that you choose to stick to yourself. You, it's sort of a good um, guide to r remind yourself that, yeah, the ultimate thing is me going to be fairly much uh, by myself because, you know, we're by ourselves anyway. We're never really with anyone else. We're always alone in our own, in our mind, even in a room full of people. You can't be aware of two things at once, but isn't an arahant always aware of Nibbana, no matter what they do? Does this mean that we have to try to develop this with our practice, or is it just a result? No, no, that's not true, that an arahant is always aware of Nibbana. You were misinformed wherever you heard that. I practiced meditation two days in a row, 15 minutes walking and 15 minutes sitting, according to the booklet. Lately, it seems to be making me more angry. Is this normal to mm -hmm. feel angry? Should I persist? So it doesn't make you feel angry. Something is making you feel angry, but it's not even making you feel angry. So nothing can make you feel angry. That's just how you react to things. And that's the problem. So that's the whole point of mindfulness, is to see that problem that you have, not the meditation. The meditation doesn't have a problem. But uh, great that you're starting to see that. I mean, good for you. Good to hear someone new coming to the practice. That's great. Good start. Keep up the good work. Um, funny that you say two days in a row lately. Like that's not, you can't say lately about two days in a row. So there must, I assume there's more to this than just those two days. But uh, that's going to take more than two days. It's going to take a lot more than that. But all it's doing is showing you yourself. If you have the habit of getting angry, that's on you. So, so change your change your your statements and be careful about your statements so that you don't blame things for your anger. I'm not saying I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm just saying you know be careful and and it's important that you be careful so that you start getting the right attitude and saying yes. This is me reacting to something, whatever it is. It's during your meditation, probably because meditation is quite monotonous. And that's a pejorative word, right? We don't like things that are monotonous. You know, monotonous, monotone. So it's only one thing after another, after the same thing after again and again, moment after moment. And that's usually boring. And you know what boredom is? Boredom is a type of anger. So the anger builds as a result. That's usually what the thing you're describing is. It's some, I mean, it's always something like that. But that's just a habit. What's the difference between boredom and peace? Perspective. Why are some destined from early years to traverse many different paths before reaching the authentic one or not at all? The experience seems to help with identifying genuine teachings but sometimes hopelessness sets in and the search is abandoned. Achieving the end goal becomes less likely later in life, with less time and energy available. Any thoughts on this? Well, it's their own, their own path, you know, it's uh, just who they are. A person who is connected to wrong view will be... Uh, will meet with people with wrong view. Why a person who practices mindfulness or Buddhism is so fortunate, because even in future lives, through their dedication to it, even just, you know, sometimes it's just uh, faith or um, appreciation of the Buddha, devotion, worshipping even of the Buddha. The good thing about it is it's going to connect them with the Buddha in the future, so they're lucky. Other people are not uh, on the right path, you know, so they cultivate wrong views, and as a result, in the future, as a result, in this life, they respect wrong views. They respect people with wrong views, and 
So in future lives, they're all going, always going to meet with such people. They're not going to meet with Buddhism. They're not going to meet with the truth. Dante, we've crossed the hour, but there's one more question in the top tier. Do you have time to answer one more? Yeah, go for it. In meditation, I sometimes feel like I'm having an insight, but I'm not sure if it's just thinking. How do I know if I'm actually realizing an aspect of reality or just understanding it intellectually? You're just understanding it intellectually. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say because you just say, I sometimes feel like I'm having an insight. The real point is that it doesn't matter. That's not your concern. You don't have to be concerned with results. When you say this again and again, you have to be concerned with practice, with um, the work you do. You do the work. The paycheck comes by itself, right? If you work in a factory, you don't have to sit on the edge of your seat and wonder if the paycheck's going to come. It comes. The paycheck comes. Like magic. So what you have to get your head around is how... Um, it's not, it isn't just you because it doesn't relate directly to your question but it's important for your question as a context um, what you have to do is you have to appreciate the nature of the practice as good and remind yourself that you can see how good it is because there's no question of it being good it's so pure and simple and strong you know the strength of the practice is that it's true it may sound silly um to, because we're so complex and we complicate everything it's true is it is it true that seeing is seeing right when you say to yourself seeing seeing when you see something it's true and you say well that's so that's silly i mean there's what what, what good is that and that's a product of our need to complicate things but it's, it is true, and that truth is powerful. There's a strength there. If you could do that with everything, where seeing is just seeing, and you just, okay, this is seeing, and when there's pain, you just see it as pain. Well, the Buddha said to Bahia, there would be no you in that, meaning there would be no attachment, no ego, no self, no self, no clinging, no possessiveness. That's all you have to do. So you just have to, um, you just have to pay attention and right. So this is the strength of it. This is, it's very simple. It's very pure. And if you can see that. You just do your work. You just do it. So when an insight arises or something you think might be an insight, don't worry about it. That's not important. You'll uh, you'll get paid once uh, at the end of the month. <laughs> you'll you'll get you know it's not just you'll get paid, but you'll 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 become a better person. You'll cure yourself of all sorts of bad habits, and you'll gain better clarity, better perspective. You'll be able to see how your mind works. You'll notice bad habits better. And you'll be more on top of situations so that you don't cultivate or feed your bad habits, that sort of thing. Don't worry about realizing an aspect of reality. Just focus on seeing reality and reminding yourself. That's the important thing about mindfulness because the word mindfulness is misleading. It's not really... The Pali word, the Pali word means remembrance, remembering. So you say to yourself, seeing, so that you remember that that's just seeing, or you, or you remember it as it is. You don't forget that and get caught up in your interpretation of it. That's the point of the word sati, is that you remember the present moment, the experience itself. Thank you, Bhante, for giving extra time to answer that last question. Thank you all for your questions. And thank you, Chris, Ibitsu, Jim, for your help, anybody else who's out there helping us.
edit is there uh everyone find peace happiness and freedom from suffering I wish you all the best and i don't know when again i don't know when we're going to have another session but uh, appreciate all the practice everyone has done and wish for you all to and maintain your connection with the great and noble path of the Buddha. May you all find fruit and success in your practice. Sadhu. Sadhu.